Welcome to this episode of SDI Encounters, a podcast from SDI, the home of spiritual companionship. I'm Matt Whitney. Learn more about us and our work on our website, sdicompanions.org. This week, we continue with our four-part series on the exploration of sexuality and spiritual companionship. Facilitated by Frederica Helmier, we present to you a series of perspectives from several spiritual directors, pastors, and guides on how they approach sexuality in their roles as spiritual companions. These episodes are offered in conjunction with an upcoming webinar series, Spiritual Companionship and the Divine Erotic, Ethics and Sexuality, which you can learn more about on our website, sdicompanions.org. This week features a conversation with Frederica and the Reverend Dr. Beverly Dale. Rev Bev, as she is known, is the chair and founder of the Incarnation Institute for Sex and Faith, and she is a workshop presenter for our upcoming SDI conference in Santa Fe in 2021. A new feature that we're introducing this week is a podcast forum. This is a place where SDI members can be in conversation about topics related to the Encounters podcast. We're very excited about this new benefit, which again is for active members of SDI. You can become a member and join in the conversation by going to our website, sdicompanions.org. Hi, everybody. Frederica here again. I hope you're enjoying this four-part series on spiritual companionship and sexuality from SDI Encounters. If you're just joining us this week for the first time, feel free to jump right in. But for context, we've spoken already with Karen Ehrlichman on week one. Karen is a spiritual companion and psychotherapist in the Bay Area. And last week with Westina Matthews and Tommy Watkins. Westina is a contemplative spirituality professor at GTS in New York City, and Tommy is the first openly gay ordained Episcopal priest in the state of Alabama. And both of those conversations are absolute treats. I invite you to go back and listen to them. Today's conversation is with Beverly Dale, who is also known as Rev Bev, and it gets into the roots of body and sex shame and insecurities within the Christian tradition. Bev and I talk about the idea of sacred sex, and embracing pleasure, and we nerd out a little bit on teachings from theologians and early church fathers from Div School days. So this conversation is mostly rooted in the Christian tradition, but next week for our final installment in the series, we're going to maneuver into the realm of contemporary shamanism with Langston Kahn, which is also going to be a treat. So we're just about halfway through the series, and I'm curious, How is all this landing for you, our listeners? What's it bringing up? What questions or comments or ideas are coming to mind as you listen to our guests in these conversations? In this interview with Rev Bev, I make a speculation partway through that the topic of sex doesn't come up much in spiritual direction or spiritual companionship sessions, or maybe at least doesn't come up very readily. Bev and I spoke at the end of 2019, and listening to the recording several months later, after three more interviews on the topic, I find myself wondering if this speculation of mine reflects reality. I really don't know. So 
I want to open this up to you, our listeners, with an informal poll. So the question for you is, in your spiritual companionship practice, does sex and sexuality come up with those whom you companion? And I'd like to invite you to share your thoughts in the discussion forum on the SDI website. So if you go to sdicompanions.org and log in, you'll see a members tab in the top right corner. And if you click on that, you can then select member forums in the drop down menu. And you should see a forum called Spiritual Companionship and Sexuality. It is open and ready for your ideas, your feedback, your comments, your questions, your worries, your fears, your celebrations, your appreciations, whatever is coming up. And if you want a specific prompt, then again, I'm inviting you to share, does sex and sexuality come up with those you companion in your spiritual companionship practice? And now, without further ado, please join me for a fascinating conversation with Rev Bev. Hi, Bev. Hello there. It's really lovely to have you join us. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, and, uh, and then we'll dive into all of these questions I have to ask you. I am an ordained in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ as clergy, and I have had a couple of different church experiences as pastor and currently as clergy in residence in a congregation that's United Church of Christ and Disciples outside Philadelphia. I spent 21 years on the campus of University of Pennsylvania, which is an Ivy League school that has the hookup culture, just like every other university in the country. But I, I came to that position already with an interest in the intersection between spirituality and sexuality. So I am consider myself a gay ally. I'm cisgender, quite middle class, and have been brutalized by the sex negativity of this culture. I can tell a little bit more about that later. Uh, in my own story, which informed why I went into this particular work. Now, the founder and chief organizer and trainer in a nonprofit I started called the Incarnation Institute for Sex and Faith. And what we do is we teach a sex positive Christianity that is both inclusive and also science friendly. And that's not a given for a lot of Christian organizations. So I want to be sure to emphasize that. So I train clergy people, seminary trained folks, in the same weekends that I train sexologists who are not getting any kind of training about how to handle religious toxicity in their academic work. And so that's what I do on the side. I just finished a book, so I'm real excited about that, too. Yeah, let's talk about that book for a moment. So this book is called Advancing Sexual Health for the Christian Client, Data and Dogma. Tell us a little bit about what compelled you and your colleague, Rachel Keller, to write this book. Well, what's unique about the book is that she comes from a secular academic perspective with the science, and I come at it from a faith-based Christian perspective. And so we have theology and sexology talking to one another. The reason we did it is that we did a very similar workshop about four years ago with the National Organization of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. And we did a group exercise in that workshop and asked them to talk with one another about the messages they got about religion and sexuality. And after a really very short time, we had one of them raise her hand and say, uh, excuse me, but I'm really triggered by this. 
And then a couple of other people said, oh, me too. I'm really triggered. It brought back so many bad memories. And we realized that there is just no way for these folks to be able to address the religious issues if they haven't worked on stuff themselves. And how in the world do they approach it? As I said before, they're not getting that in their training. So this book is specifically for professionals, spiritual directors, I would put in that same category, where you really want to be helpful to people in their spiritual journey. And much of their very real problems have to do with body image, sexual self-confidence or lack thereof, or intimacy issues. So we provide tools, and we also give an understanding of how this all came about in Christianity and why it's important, it's crucial to divide out the faith experience and support that from the religious beliefs that are actually creating the problems for them. I have some questions for you about the audience of the book and how spiritual directors and companions fit into that, but let's pause for a moment and go a little bit into what I think is often the crux of what you write and teach about, and it is these problematic Christian teachings that have resulted in this powerful culture of shame and guilt around bodies. And I know there's a lot to say about this, Bev, but what are a couple of things that you could share or maybe remind, in this case, listeners of, this may already be familiar to our folks, about some of the ways in which the church and the Christian tradition has powerfully influenced how we feel about our bodies and intimacy and sex? One of the basic ones is that sex is only for procreation. And most modern people understand in the privacy of our own bedrooms that, oh, sex is for pleasure too. <laughs> but we don't talk about that. But the church has a whole history of pushing women as baby makers and sex is for procreation. St. Augustine even went so far as to say, if you're going to have sex with your partner, just don't enjoy it too much. You know, that would have been really bad. The best thing in the history was church teaching was best sex is no sex. Okay, so what we have now is a kind of a shame around being sexual and kind of a shame that, yeah, we enjoy our bodies. So we enjoy the bodies of other people or we enjoy hanging from the chandelier when we have sex or putting on the opposite gender's clothes or whips and chains or whatever. So there's a lot of shame around just simply being sexual people. And then that shame leads us to then keep secrets and it's hard then for us to talk about the ways in which we made bad decisions or actually we simply didn't know the words to say no. And so we have sexual histories that are replete with wounding and abuse and we don't really like to talk about that. With hashtag me too, it's coming out more. So hopefully that's giving particularly women more impetus to be honest and truthful and therefore find some healing about it. And then mixed in with all of this is the whole thing around the traditional church's perspective on gender has always been, oh goodness, strictly binary, and very much that men have more power than women. Now, there are those who try to say, well, but women have just as much power, but it's complementary. Well, if you have to put women over here with the babies and the children in the house, but the men are out there making the paycheck, you know, I don't think that's equal power at all. So there's a gendered piece in that. And that gets played out a little bit in the antipathy towards homosexuality as well, that you can't have two men having sex because then which one is the dominant, which one is the submissive. And so there's that piece going on. So all of this stuff is kind of informed by the fact that the Christianity came out of the Greco-Roman world 
which was highly sexist and disregarded the integrity of bodies and the integrity of women. And that stuff got into our teaching Mm. and it has been sold for a thousand years and is still being acted out on the grand stage of the Vatican and the right wing also. Reverend Dr. Beverly Dale is the chair and founder of the nonprofit Incarnation Institute for Sex and Faith, where she trains professional leadership in inclusive, science-friendly, and sex-positive Christianity. She is the co-author of Advancing Sexual Health for the Christian Client, recently published in 2019. This unique resource provides tools for theological and sexual health professionals as it combines the insights of science and a sex-positive Christian theology. She's currently serving as clergy in residence at United Christian Church in Levittown, Pennsylvania, and is a professor at Lancaster Theological Seminary, teaching courses on sexuality and religion. Support for this podcast comes from SDI's upcoming webinar, Spiritual Companionship and the Divine Erotic, Ethics and Sexuality. In this two-part webinar, we will explore embodied spirituality, sexuality, and the divine erotic as they relate to the practice of spiritual companionship. Join us for this practice-based training designed for spiritual companions, guides, and directors. Learn more on our website, www.sdicompanions.org. And now, here's part two of our conversation. There's a lot of richness here. We can dig into it more later on in this conversation. But I want to think about ways in which your work and specifically your book is applicable to folks who identify as spiritual directors and spiritual companions. So the book that you wrote recently, Bev, sounds like it's for folks, or at least in part, it's for folks who identify as sexual health providers, and they're working with Christian clients. So they're working with clients who have been powerfully informed by this Christian context. And the SDI community, perhaps unlike the typical reader of your book, may be pretty familiar already with religious and specifically Christian theology and doctrine and culture and Christendom, but may have kind of a different level of comfort with sexual health and sexuality. So when I think about applying this to spiritual companionship and spiritual companions, I imagine that there's an awful lot of sex shaming that folks are bringing into their sessions with a spiritual director or spiritual companion. So there's probably a lot of folks who are encountering clients that have this, but I suspect that it doesn't come up a whole lot. And that might be because the person who is being accompanied in this context may feel as though what they're bringing to their spiritual direction or spiritual companionship space is a desire to work through issues of the spirit and ideas and beliefs and less to work through some body things. It might be sort of an expectation that this is a disembodied space. And after all, my spiritual director is not my therapist. They're certainly not my sex therapist. But this is a huge part of who we are. This is a huge part of who the directee is. So my question for you is, what do spiritual companions need in order to accompany 
others towards a really healthy and affirming spiritual life and will maybe include in that a liberated sexual ethic? What can spiritual companions and directors do or seek out or bring into that space? I think probably spiritual directors have an intuitive understanding, if not an an acknowledged understanding, that we know spirit not through our left brain. We know spirit through the heart, and we know spirit through our senses. It is the beingness that we experience when we are in a beautiful place watching a sunset. It is uh, what happens to us when the moment where we see a first newborn baby. You know, there's some things that happen for us spiritually that we only get through our eyes and our ears and our smells and, you know, our touches. So I think acknowledging that, I mean, certainly Christian clients, we have as a basic tenet of Christianity that God became flesh. And then this is the religion that has the most trouble with the flesh. Mm. So there's something really bizarre about that. So in progressive congregations, such as the one I am a part of, that are recurring messages to remind people over and over and over that how we love, the things that we do with our hands and our feet and our what we say, how we look at people, whether we touch people, all of that is an expression of the divine. That's how we express God in us. And it is how we will know God in our midst, particularly when we are working with uh, accompanying people who have had a harder time in our culture, as they're poor or they're people of color or they're handicapped or that kind of thing. So the body is incredibly important for Christianity if we are to access the divine. So that's my first point. And then I guess the other piece is, if the spiritual directors get that and their clients kind of get that, then the next phase that our culture needs, and certainly we need, is to embrace pleasure and not be ashamed of it. But we need to be laughing more. We need to be dancing more. We need to be talking about the wonderful sensual experiences we're having and describe them as sensual. And perhaps in certain circumstances, describe sexual experiences that have been erotic and divine, where we've really connected with another person or persons in a way that has helped us connect with a mystery and awe. I think that's where we have to move as a culture, because that's the carrot that's going to encourage people to leave behind their sex negativity. We have to be able to show that there's more pleasure out there than you're getting. They already know. Look at the anger that's being exhibited in so many places of power right now. Nobody's having any good sex there. Nobody's having good, pleasurable, sensual time there. They're very unhappy people. And so those people who get it, who are putting pleasure as a priority in their lives, I'm not talking about hedonism here. I'm not talking about irresponsible hedonism. I'm talking about sensual and sexual pleasure as part of being who we are. James B. Nelson, one of the first Christian theologians I read in his book, Embodiment, back in the early 80s, said that pleasure is the strongest argument for the existence of God. Okay, folks, what does that say if we're kind of putting a cap on that pleasure, not letting people know that we're actually having lots of fun? So we really need to move into that and celebrate it, celebrate life and all of its abundance. I'm thinking of Matthew Fox and what he wrote in, I think it was in 
We, we, we. He has the best book titles of, of I any explosion. I think he says there, the experience of ecstasy is the direct experience of God. Yes. And I think that it's possible to have peak spiritual experiences during sex, to have these encounters with the divine. But this is not talked about because there's so much shame around that being a particular experience of the divine. And, you know, what Matthew Fox is saying is so, it seems so radical. I mean, to equate an encounter with God, with ecstasy. And it strikes me that there's just this enormous suspicion of feeling good. It's not seen indicative of anything really positive. It's not seen as productive. And and so I'm wondering, again, bringing this back to spiritual companions, is there a role that spiritual companions can play in helping others to be open to experiencing God through physical union, through ecstasy, through pleasure? Or is this feeling that like some line is being crossed when that is what the spiritual director or spiritual companion is introducing or opening up their client to? If the spiritual director can do this genuinely, you know, it's not artificial and they really do believe this and they live this, then no, it's not a crossing a line that's inappropriate. It is important to bring it out. I can go back farther than Matthew Fox. I can go back to Julian of Norwich, who said, God is in our sensuality, for in the same instant and place in which our soul is made sensual exists the city of God. So, well, you know, she's making that connection. So it's important to understand that there have throughout the history, Meister Eichhardt was there, or let's go back to Rumi. There have been spiritual thinkers and theologians who have seen that mix. The fact that we can't get the body and the soul together is specifically because of the Greco-Roman world and specifically because of people like St. Jerome and St. Augustine, who divorced the mind and body. So if we want to help people be whole, and spiritually whole, then we have to help them marry those again. So yeah, that's that's really, it's crucial. Are there things that could come up in a spiritual direction session that in your professional opinion might cause a spiritual director to say, at this point, I'm no longer the best equipped person to help you with this. At this point, you need to be talking to a therapist or specifically a sex therapist. Can you help folks understand when something might come up where they're no longer the right person to be accompanying someone. In our book, we talk about using a, a Socratic method, you know, asking questions and gently nudging people. So uh, the spiritual director needs to do that too. And as you describe your God, does that remind you of anybody in your family system? One other tactic in the therapeutic setting is to ask people to do a touch history. Who were the first people who touched them? And who were the people who told them they could not touch themselves? And what kinds of touches did they get? Was it brusque? Was a person who was washing their body uncomfortable? You know, those kinds of things. Those memories get into our body. So when a spiritual director begins to understand that there's some real resistance to being touched, for example, or even talking about certain things, you can be sure that there's a memory there or something that's gotten embedded in the body that needs to have some therapeutic intervention. And I think the spiritual director who can pick that up is in the best place to say, in order for us to be spiritually whole, it's important for us to begin to dig out those places and memories that are still bothering us at a subconscious level or at a spiritual level as well. 
I have said in my own work that that doesn't sound like the God that Jesus had. That doesn't sound like a God that is a God of love, which I thought your tradition taught. Why are you acting that way? You know, that mm-hmm. that's not your God. That's more like grandpa, whatever, as a way of kind of pointing them to the fact that that's not their genuine faith experience of goodness and love. That is instead very much rooted in culture, but rooted in how we were treated in the family system and so forth. And that's a therapeutic issue to kind of get that stuff out. I have not gone through a formation program, a training experience in spiritual direction, but I imagine that this is a very important component of what people go through in their training. There's all sorts of topics at which point you are no longer the right person to help someone and they need someone with more professional training. Bev, what are some questions that spiritual directors or companions can ask folks that will open them up to this topic, to this territory? What are some questions that they can bring into the space that will invite folks to consider the ways in which their sexual ethic or their sexual scripts have been informed by religion and spirituality and may have been damaging and consider some alternatives? What came to my mind first is that In the book, we try to make the distinction between faith and beliefs. And so in spiritual direction, I believe the focus of that is on the faith piece. What are the times and places in which they feel closest to the divine, mystery, love? Where do they sit? What's around them? Get them to visualize that so that client understands that you are certainly in their corner and you have an understanding of where the good stuff is for them, the stuff that feeds our spirit. That's where I understand spiritual direction is. So when the client begins to talk about specific challenges and problems that they're facing, the ones that have therapeutic possibilities are those where they begin to talk about an intimacy concern, that the relationship is not going well, or when they reflect to the spiritual director that they don't like their body and there's some self-esteem issues there or if there's a concern that they're not able to date people or find people who are interesting, you know, that's a social issue that may reflect a deep concern around body or sexuality or sensuality. I think it's a good question to ask if their spiritual experience includes, how it includes the body. How do they know the divine through touch? Mm. Give me some examples. And Mm. have that conversation, because when you get feedback that, it's not, it's about believing in their heads, then you know, okay, they're avoiding the body. So when spiritual directors can begin to detect a disconnect between that body and the spirit, there you've got it. So you just got to find out, is it the husband? Is it the mom? Is it the childhood trauma that they experienced? Okay, those things require therapy. And you support that completely because God is bigger than that pain. But we have to kind of untangle the knot to get to healing. And in conjunction with spiritual direction, then a, th- a sex therapist can be helpful with that. Bev, you started talking a little bit about some of the tools, the resources in your book. And I'd love for you to share a couple more of those. You talked about a touch history, or maybe an attachment history. I don't know if those are the same or different and doing different timelines. Can you share a couple of tools and resources that you think would be useful for spiritual directors? I like the touch timeline because that is so helpful. I don't know, are spiritual directors allowed to touch their clients? I've heard different answers to this question. 
I wish we could open up the phones right now and have all the spiritual directors yeah. call in. I know some that certainly do. We're meeting in person and they hold hands and there is touch. And I know some who either can't because they're meeting virtually over Zoom or they choose not to. Okay, because that's a wonderful tool to be able to do some hand massage. What's in the book that I'm really proud of stuff because I don't think it exists anywhere else is I have four Christian meditations on the body. One is on sensuality, one is on the body specifically, one is a hand massage for couples, and the fourth one is an X-rated one where it's a homework assignment. And so what I try to do, because so many people can't envision their God or their Jesus in sensual ways. So by having them listen to a guided imagery with their eyes closed and thinking through what is it like to taste hot chocolate on a cold night or see the sunset or listen to children's laughter, and then to hear a theologian talk about pleasure is the strongest argument for the existence of God you know, and then go back to something else and then quote Hildegard and, and then God became flesh. Goodness, that's repeated a lot in one of those meditations. It's a way of kind of bringing home what so many people think is an abstract statement. So that's a tool that I'm real proud of. And it's also recorded. So if you've got the little URL on the Rutledge website, you can have the clients listen to it in the session. So I think those kinds of guided imageries, I think are useful and helpful. Here's a question for you, Bev. I think in spiritual companionship, a very common thing that comes up is when folks are experiencing, you know, what some of the Christian mystics would call it, this dark night of the soul, where there's this period of dormancy and sort of spiritual malaise. And then, of course, there's sort of the sexual equivalent. There's sort of the sexual slump or this period of disinterest and kind of disconnect. Do you see those two things as being related or are they kind of existing in their own spheres? That's an interesting question and that there should be some research project on that one. They could very well be related. And in both of those situations, I've struggled with depression in my life. And when you're depressed, it seems to me that you are, I was terribly self-absorbed. It was down deep in the shadows of my being. It's where my focus was because that's where my feelings were. And by definition, that took me out of my body. If, however, I exercised or if I lit the candles at my table and I put on my favorite CD and I did things that were sensual or active, then my mood would shift. And I think that's important. So if the dark night of the soul, which is the spiritual time, difficulty, but also it can be difficult or it could be simply a plateau and that's kind of where we need to be. But the question is, are we still feeding our spirit sensually and through pleasure? And for some, I can envision some would say, no, I need to be totally absorbed in my thoughts around my spiritual connection or disconnect and not get into my body. I understand people could make that argument. If, however, it goes on for a period of time and things are not shifting, I believe that getting in touch with pleasure and the body can help us shift out to a different level. And at that point, we might be able to see things differently. It's a fascinating question to ask and to wonder about. 
Another question comes to mind for me, Bev, and this has to do with imagining the various ways in which anyone who is in a position as, as a mentor or a guide is confronted with sort of the, the mirror and their own issues come up. So I imagine that in spiritual direction or companionship, perhaps more than other topics that come up in that space, it's possible that the director, the companion, might all of a sudden have to confront their own woundedness if the client is sort of getting into some of the stuff around the, the shame and the guilt and the baggage that they have from religious traditions. So what are some things that spiritual directors or companions should be aware of or that they can do if they find themselves all of a sudden realizing that they've got some work to do around this as well? I think that's important. Henry Nowen called this the wounded healer that we don't stand above our clients or above our parishioners. We are with them, and just as they are sexually wounded, pleasure-deprived, suffering from homophobia or erotophobia in the culture, so are we. And so I think acknowledging that is important. I think working on our own story, our own narrative that's still playing in our head is, is imperative. That's why you have supervision mm -hmm. and why therapists go to their own therapy to work on their stuff. But I think acknowledging it to a client might be helpful in terms of just helping the client trust you more if they understand, oh, okay, well, they understand that shame issue because they have it as well as I do. But you don't want to get to the point where now they don't trust you because you can't help because you haven't worked out your own stuff. So it's important, as important as it can be for us to be self-aware of the ways in which we have cut off our bodies from our spirits and then work on our reconnecting and then some of what we have done will be helpful to others as well. I mean, that's mm -hmm. why I'm doing this work is because of my own sexual history, if I may insert here, Please. was I had an older uncle who got, as a teenager, got his sex education from my body. And... Okay, sexual molesting, and now I have that to deal with. And that set me up for bad boundaries. So now we're talking date rape because I can't say no, because I can't say yes, because I can't say anything about it. So my own sexual story is not a happy one and filled with a lot of trauma. So I didn't hear any good news from my church, only silence and about being a woman or about being sexual. So it's through the women's movement and through therapy that I began to discover that I had been sold a bill of goods <laughs> by my church. I didn't hear this from my church. And so I realized I had a spiritual wounding too. When your church set, or in your culture and your family set you up to be sexually ignorant, that's this real setup. So uh, that intersection of sexual trauma and cultural erotophobia that led to my own ignorance and, and setting me up in ways that I was abused, that's my reality. So how I work through that and still came out a Christian is part of another story that I'm writing. But that's important for the clients to understand that we're working on our own things as well. You know, and, and I'm not going to bring my stuff to the session unless it will be helpful to you. But I'm not going to bring this to the, the session in order to work out my stuff as we work out your stuff, you know. Thanks for offering us some of that personal context for your work. I have to say I have a bias about spiritual directors, and it's a good bias. Much of my work is with people who are still sitting in the pews or people who left the pews. 
but they're solidly entrenched in Christian dogma and rule keeping. And they are either very aware of the fear-based, shame-based part of Christianity or they're not. My bias about spiritual directors is that perhaps that has been discarded or moved to the side. It's understood, but it's not the focus of what spiritual directors do. And so I believe that spiritual directors are in a wonderful position to help anyone who seeks out a spiritual director rather than their pastor in a church. It's going to be looking for something different than the shame-based, fear-based Christian teachings and dogma. So they are very much placed to be able to do the proactive work of celebration of pleasure, the proactive work of naming the divine in these bodies. That is huge, and it's so important in our culture right now. And there are so many churches and denominations who are simply not there. They're, they're doing the trauma work of cleaning up oppression. And way back there with the biblical exegesis of what does that word mean then. And they can't, they don't have the energy or the bandwidth to really do that celebration work because mm-hmm. that's not where they are in their developmental understanding of erotophobia. Spiritual directors, on the other hand, and those who come to a spiritual director, I think are much farther developed maybe more evolved, shall we say, <laughs> not spiritually, but you know, more involved in terms of the development of where religion comes in here and where spirit comes in here. So I think the focus is to give people lots of permission to go with what their heart says and go with their intuition and certainly listen to their body when they are in sessions, but also in their own spiritual development to open themselves up in new ways. There's not a lot of places where that happens in this culture, where it's happening in the secret some places, yeah. and it's not getting the spiritual label to it. It's not being identified as sacred. And that's where spiritual directors can make that link and integrate it together. That's a great insight. It's a wonderful bias, I think. I hope it's true. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I've heard you use the word er- erotophobia a few times. I think I know what that means, but could you define it for our listeners? You know, I don't know who came up with it, so I can't give credit for it, but it's basically fear of passion. And it does mean that anytime you get close to pleasure, that's close to passion. And church folks, the more rule-based you are, the more obedience-oriented you are in your religion, the more uncomfortable you are with passion and feelings. And Mm -hmm. the underlying message of the church throughout 2,000 years plus is that if it feels good, it's a sin. And you can't trust yourself. We all know intuitively, I think biologically, we understand that we like pleasure, that the part of our brain lights up when we're having sensual good times. And when that happens, we are tempted that let's have more, let's have more parties. And uh, there's a fear then that that will run away with us and then we'll spend our paycheck and we'll you know, do irresponsible things and that kind of thing. Well, I don't think that's the case. I think what we find people running away and spending their paycheck doing something they think is fun is actually not that at all. It's, it's a reaction to repression. It strikes me, Bev, that I think for so many people, 
I suspect that there's this first step, which is like, okay, pleasure is okay. I'm allowed to have fun sometimes. I'm allowed to indulge in pleasure. But that it's sort of seen as like, well, occasionally there's exceptions to the rules and I can dabble in this and God approves. But it's a much larger leap to go from that to like, God is in the pleasure. And in that moment of intimacy, that that is sacred in and of itself. I think that that is the harder leap to make. Yeah, I think the other religions, I mean, Hindu, for example, is very much, uh, or the followers of Rumi, you know, that sacred sexuality is a possibility. This is a Christian culture when it comes to sex. That is, we have completely absorbed the Greco-Roman rule-based, shame-based understanding. Mm -hmm. So as a culture, we are so far from sacred sex. We are so far from it. And so there are some around us who have made that a priority to have sacred sex, to seek it out, and to name it as something very special. You won't find very many of those folks in churches. And so those people who come to spiritual direction who are removed from that may be more open to the sacred intimacy and so forth. Mm -hmm. But if you read some of the body positive early writers, you know, the whole, the whole God as a lover, God, my goodness, what would happen if we start praying instead of dear father to lover God, which I have done. And I, sometimes mm -hmm. I get chuckles, mm -hmm. but people don't push me out. You know, they don't say, no, you can't say that. They just, whoa. And that's the idea. Begin to plant seeds. I'm a farmer's daughter. Plant the seeds. We don't know how many generations it will take for a harvest to begin to happen in this culture, but we have to begin planting seeds that pleasure is not only good, as you say, but it's also a source of the divine, and it's how we know the divine. Yeah. And we can bring that into our sacred relationships, but also within ourselves. You don't have mm -hmm. to have a partner for this experience of the divine. I remember the first time I came across this idea of these other models and metaphors of God. I think back in undergrad, and I think it was Sally McFaig, I think it was her Models of God, where she introduced this idea that there's God as friend and there's God as mother, and those two are fine, but God as lover, that was when I began to realize just how entrenched this idea was that like this eroticism does not belong in the God that I have been taught to understand and to worship, that that was yeah. such an incongruence. Right, right. And some of that, truthfully, is because God is usually envisioned as male. Mm. And we think of men as lovers in the conquest mode. We do not think of the maleness as lovers in a egalitarian or a, a feminine or nurturing and touching, caressing kind of mode. So mm. we can point fingers and say, well, you didn't get that because you the Christianity that is existing in the Western church is patriarchal. It's all masculinized. And when you masculinize it, you lose so much. That's part of deconstructing this mind-body disconnect is that the father-god stuff has got to go, or at least be equally balanced with lovers and mothers and mystery and other metaphors that get to the heart piece and get to the body piece in wonderful ways, intimate ways. I want to close us, Bev, with these two quotes, these definitions that I came across. And I got this from The Liturgist. This is one of my favorite podcasts. And they were doing an episode on sex and sexuality. And so this comes from one of their hosts, a woman named Hillary McBride. And she's giving a definition of spirituality and lining it up with a definition of sexuality. 
so her spirituality definition is, this is, this comes from McNee in 1997. Spirituality is the core dimension of humanity that seeks to discover meaning and purpose and connectedness with self and others and ultimately with God. And then the definition of sexuality, and she's getting this from Woodstock 2009, is the physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual energy that permeates, influences, and colors our entire being and personality in its quest for love, communion, friendship, wholeness, self-perpetuation, and self-transcendence. And when you line those up side by side, you start to see how those are the same longing. It is the same desire for connectedness and for belonging and to be seen and to do the seeing and that these hold hands so nicely. Mm -hmm. I know of an American Baptist pastor who's also a sexologist, Bill Staten, and he's been in this field for a long time, and he teaches sexuality at Widener University, and he will have his class divide in half. Half the class will come up with, how would you define sexuality? And the other half, how do you define spirituality? And they don't know what the word is they're doing. And then he puts them up there, and you cannot tell them apart. They are one and the same. It is the intersection. It is the same. Mm. So, yeah, we should be paying attention to that and working on the, on healing the disconnect. Bev, what an honor to have you join our podcast and share some of your wisdom and your knowledge. I really hope that this will, at the very least, have been intriguing for our listeners. And hopefully for some, it's been healing and really informative and offered some tools for how to expand what folks bring into their spiritual companionship roles. Thank you. This has been fun. Thank you. Where can folks learn more about you and your work? The trainings that I do are at incarnationinstitute.org, the website. And then my website is beverlydale.org. I have nine YouTubes that are just five or six minutes. They're meant to start group discussion on various topics around sexuality. So that might be a good place to start as well. If you're enjoying this podcast and you want to help us share and spread the word about the life-giving practice of spiritual companionship, you can help us out by subscribing to this podcast through your favorite app. You could give us a like or even write us a review. Thank you for listening. This is Matt Whitney with Spiritual Directors International. Thanks again for listening. Your time and your presence here are deeply appreciated. If you liked this show and would like us to continue making them, please do subscribe now while it's fresh on your mind. Also, we would love to hear from you, so please feel free to send in your comments and suggestions to the email address podcast at sdiworld.org. SDI is the home of spiritual companionship. Learn more about us and our work on our website, sdicompanions.org.